Last time I chatted with Jack, I had pages of questions I still wanted to ask. With this episode, I attempt to address that backlog. And the more I talk to Jack, the more I realize that the theme of his entire career is be a builder. As someone who started and worked at many startups, he sure knows firsthand how to do that well and in a way that is sustainable. Today, we talk about his work at Vimeo, what it means to collaborate with others, and how to build a network of folks that are there when you need them most. Enjoy this episode. Jack Zerby, welcome to the second installment of your presence here in the work item. Round two. Yeah, good to be here. How are things going? How has th- how has everything been going since March? We last talked in March, which in internet time is forever. <laughs> it's years. <laughs> it is years. It's going great. Yeah, working on a ton of cool projects. I mean, I always have like a laundry list of things that I'm working on at any given time. So a lot of launches, some new fun projects at Gumroad. Um, and I'm sure Sahil doesn't care, but I, uh, I'm i going to be working on an open source version of Gumroad. So that's something in the works that he's wanted to do for a long time. So I'm kind of leading that process. We don't even know what it's going to be. We just know there's going to be some open source version of Gumroad. So that'll be a fun project. And then launched my Design for Dex business officially doing a lot of workshops and the done for you service is now open, uh, working with founders and also VC firms because they need to raise money, which is interesting. So doing decks for VC firms, which is also fine. Um, so that business and then do HQ, my text message training startup. We're launching a brand new funnel from that. We've been working on for a while, going to be running ads to that. And, uh, I mean, I can go through the list. <laughs> Hey, tell me more about that text messaging startup. I have never heard of that. That was originally called the School of Action. So it was something that, that my, a longtime friend, Anthony, that I actually um, went to high school with. And uh, we started working with Penn State students because I li- live right near Penn State. So we started working with them. On, like, a- actually, for me, it was I went down to Penn State and started talking to some of the students down there because I was getting bored. I'm like, I was by myself in an apartment. We had just moved to this area and I was like, I need to get around some weirdos, some entrepreneurs. And so I started, you know, meeting with some of the college students down there and the entrepreneur school and stuff like that. So we started this thing called Fight Club. We didn't have another name for it, but it was like in the Donald's basement. And I was like, all of them kept saying to me, like, we're not learning anything in our business classes. And I was like, well, you know, I'm in, I'm in the, the, the pit every day, right? Like I'm in here fighting the scary startup lions and stuff. So um, I can tell you how it really is and I can give you some advice and we can kind of work on things. And, but the, the only qualification is everybody actually has to take action. Everybody has to do something and report back the next meeting that we have. And if you don't, then you're kicked out, right? Just like in Fight Club, you got to fight or you got to leave. <laughs> so that turned into almost like a dojo for entrepreneurs. We had 30 student cohorts. They were all paying too, which was interesting. And uh, we ran them through a, a dojo-like setup where they would be white belt, where they would learn about mindset and, and copywriting. So we had them go through a series of actions from white belt to get the yellow belt. They had to do something yellow belt the whole way up. So like in white belt, for them to get their yellow belt, they actually had to do 20 minutes of stand-up comedy. Wow. Yeah. And surprisingly, because look, I'm like, if you can get on stage, 
the comedy is the purest form of sales because if you don't get a laugh, you didn't sell the joke. Like right, right. If you can't, if you can get up on stage in front of a bunch of strangers and make them laugh, you can easily get in front of a customer and sell something, right? So surprisingly, a lot of I think almost everybody did it, and we even had like stand up nights where we would get up and I would do it, and I'm like, man, this is really hard. Like halfway through it. And so then that turned into this kind of action-based software that's like, how do you, we thought like you can teach entrepreneurship, you could teach a million different things using this action-based approach where give someone an action instead of giving them a whole bunch of information, give them one thing to do. Like if I'm going to teach you to do push-ups, I'm not going to give you, here's a whole book on push-ups. I'm going to say, do one. And then you'll upload a video of you doing one and I give you feedback on it. Or it could be automated feedback. Be like, based on the millions of push-ups we've seen, here's the common mistakes, right? But you only get that by doing the work. So you get the prompt and you get the, the take the action, you get the feedback. So we thought we could apply that to any kind of learning. So that morphed into DoHQ, which is how can we even make it more frictionless? So it could have been a teachable type interface. And I, I worked with the Teachable team for a year on their UI and UX. So I got to learn a lot about that space. I'm like, there's nobody doing this. I mean, there's one other competitor um, who's doing this, but it's very, you know, ours is much more action-based approach. There's a much more like next, next, next sort of thing. Right. So we applied it to text messaging and we've had, surprisingly, a lot of churches are using it to engage, which is pretty awesome. Um, engage their, you know, the, the people that, that attend there. We've had Corporations like Novartis, big pharma companies that are doing their internal employee training, uh, fitness instructors, everybody. So it's really about you can't just watch a video and go on to the next thing. You've got to actually take an action. So that's kind of where that came from. And I have a lot of experience in that space. I've been a Skillshare instructor for, gosh, like eight years, you know, with almost 40,000 students now. But it's not really action focus. It's really just watch a video of me blab on for an hour. <laughs> that is really cool. And yeah. It's so true what you're talking about in terms of actionability, because if I think back at even my college days, yeah, you're sitting in class, they're giving you all these assignments of write a paper on this topic or write a paper on this topic, or here's this algorithm that exists out there. Yes. But I don't remember actually putting a lot of it into practice. Like I don't remember sitting down or being told, I guess, by the professor, because yeah, you can practice on your own, but right. nobody guided me and said, sit down, implement this, practice more, implement this, then test what yes. you know, then do it again. So it's kind of a different approach, but I, I like your very actionable take on, on this problem. Well, if in, when, when other designers ask me like, hey, you know, are there any courses I can take? I'm like, I don't know. I never took a design course. Like, yeah, I majored in, in college, but I didn't pay attention. I didn't care because it was just like, right. it just wasn't applicable. And so that's how I learned design. It's how I learned the code. I just did it and reverse engineered things and took action. And you just have to go do it. Like you can only read about it for so long. So that's kind of the whole ethos around that. So that's been for me a, a real passion project because I, I love teaching. It's like one of my big things. Um, so if we can help other teachers teach, that's great. And then I'm working on another one with my old boss, Lisa Straussfeld at Pentagram. Um, she's brilliant. She was, she went to MIT Brown and Harvard and is an amazing data scientist. She led data at, at Bloomberg and also at Gallup. And she partnered up with this guy, Adam Bly, who was the former head of big data at Spotify. Um, so they're doing this thing. You can go to system.com. They're basically building an interface. Their kind of tagline 
is uh, a groundbreaking way of organizing data and knowledge into systems so that you could really, for data teams or whatever, they could put all these like giant data sets in and make decisions, right, through machine learning and stuff. So that's been a really fun one. You know, we're, we're working with brand, you know, all kinds of brand writers and stuff like that to make this new website and, and positioning and brand. I have a couple others, but I just, I'm blabbing on. <laughs> you are keeping yourself busy for all the things that you're doing across all the different projects. And they're not even siloed within the same, I want to say area of, not, not expertise, area of focus, right? Yeah. Because we always hear about people being in their silos where they're saying, I'm a data scientist. I'm working only on projects related to data around, I don't know, like environmental data or yeah. chemical data. Yes. But you're kind of working across the spectrum where you're into all sorts of projects. How do you scale that effort? Like, how do you, how do you help yourself be good across yeah. the board? Yeah, well, it's 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 interesting. I've kind of discovered this new role that I'm not even sure how to like what label to put on it. Um, so there's two different startups that I'm working with now. One system and another one called Hello Equity, which is around um, you know they raised a bunch of money to help homeowners understand how much equity they have in their house, right? So we could work with credit unions and real estate teams, and and so in both capacities, I've been kind of set up and positioned like the executor, right? Like Hey Jack, we want to build this app or hey Jack, we want to build this website or you know whatever we want to do and I've done it enough times that I know the pitfalls. So, I'm paid, you know, on a retainer to just come in there and say like, "Hey, look, what do you want to build? I'm going to put the team together." So I get developers and writers. So I kind of look at it almost like a producer in the Hollywood model, right? So I put, you know, I'm putting all the best teams together to create what we need and so the deliverable is the thing that we decided we were going to build. So that's, that's been a really interesting role because I don't actually have to do the pixel moving, right? Because I tell them, I'm like, it's not, it's not worth it to pay me to do the pixel work. We could find a really great designer and that's all they would focus on. That's how I would look at that kind of, that kind of role. And it's interesting because the value at this point that you're describing is that expertise as to you know how to glue things together to make sure that they work rather than the yeah. typical, you know, write us the snippet of code or produce us this icon for the or the logo because yes it's another very i want to say undervalued aspect of leadership is that ability that knowledge of saying i can pinpoint the problems that exist or the pitfalls you might not be considering versus yeah well you're not actually writing code but that's okay right yes and it's it's really like what the way i go into it is like look Without me, you're probably going to spend three times as much money and it's going to take three times as much time because if they haven't done it, either they haven't done it before or like they're, you know, in Lisa's case, like she's, she should be focused on the product stuff, right? So there's no reason for her to be doing all these things. I can come in as a support to come in and say, hey, we want to put this whole new brand together. Jack, help, help us do that for, for half, if not a third of the costs. Because you could go hire a big expensive agency and I'm not knocking agencies because I've worked at several of them, but it's very expensive because there's a lot of overhead. And so I like to come in there and just, and, and just put together the best team that I can put together of, of really strong, talented individuals um, and create something amazing. And then you could do that. I mean, there's so many talented people out there 
especially now that are working remote, like anything you want to pull off, like you can bring in the different people. Like, and I borrowed that from like when I would make albums, right. With my music, I would go higher, you know, and I don't know if I talked about it on the, on the last, uh, last podcast, but it's like, you want a bass player? Well, okay. There's John Marin, right? He's a couple of hundred bucks. He played with Stevie wonder. Played, like he's just like an amazing bass player. Right. So bring John in, bring Brandon in, bring these. And there's all these amazing musicians and you make, and you put them in a studio, you give them lunch and pay for their transportation and then pay for their time there. And you make an amazing album. So that's kind of how I look at that. This is something that gives a lot of thought to me. And even to folks that are listening to this and are thinking about their career over time, yeah, there is this unhealthy focus sometimes on reinventing the wheel just for the sake of reinventing the wheel. Like your example yes. of music, where it's like, oh, I need to have a, you know, some electronic. You know what? I'll buy Fruity Loops. I'll start doing it myself. No, because your value yeah. does not come from you doing every single piece from A to Z. Yes. I was talking to another podcast producer and he was talking about, look, when it comes to the podcast, I just record it with my guest and then I hand it off to somebody to do the editing and the transcripts and everything yeah. else. Like their time is valuable. They don't need to do everything. And this is where you are kind of the embodiment of that sentiment where he's like, I come in with my expertise, but I don't necessarily have my hands in everything. Yes. And that's a new thing for me. It's been, it's, and it's funny you bring that up because it's something where I've wanted to grow for a long time. And so like for this design for Dex business, I have two partners, um, Aton and Sam, and I wouldn't have been able to pull it off without them. So Aton's a master of networking and marketing and just like getting all that stuff, automation set up. And then Sam former Israeli military, like very systematic, very process oriented. He does all the sales calls. He's the head of operations. Um, he does, you know, helping me with all the sales systems and all that kind of process. And we have that like, and him and I are very detailed. So we have every part of the process mapped out. So now it's running without me. Like Sam's like, Hey, I did three sales calls yesterday. We closed this one. We did this one with this one. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is why I did it this way. <laughs> like, and so my job on the team is to help with the brand, the mar uh, you know, the marketing materials and things like that, and then to actually do the deck designs. And I'll be bringing in other designers to help me with that. Eventually, kind of de delegating myself out of that, out of that role and into just strategy. But you do have to do it in incrementally. Like if if you're not used to it, you've got to be able to just start delegating like one or two little things. Like you don't have to jump right into it because that could actually end up being a disaster because now you feel like you could just, you know, you don't know enough yet about how to do that. So, you know, even something like as small as accounting, I hired bench.com to do that. Right. So now they do all my bookkeeping and it's like, I don't have to touch, you know, fresh books and all these things other than just send out invoices. Eventually I'll probably outsource that. So it, it really is true that, you know, if you're focused on what your talents are, like be very careful about that and be like, I am like, I was spending, for example, and this is how, you know, something's wrong. I was spending, if I would do a deck design and I did one for air angels. So they're the Airbnb alumni syndicate, uh, working with Daniel Rumanek, the, the, the partner there. And they have a lot of logos because they have a lot of alumni that's worked a lot. I was spending, I think of that, of that project, let's say it was 40 hours. Like, 20 of those hours was crop finding and cropping logos <laughs> like 
finding the logo, importing it in the Figma and cropping it and putting it in the thing. And so we hired a great design support lead, um, Ange, and she's helping me do all that. And she loves doing it and setting it up, making it all organized. And now it just like took that off my plate. And I'm like, oh, I never have to crop another logo again. <laughs> this is great. So there's another example. Yeah. Right. You At some point, you don't need to do your own taxes. At some point, it's worth just paying somebody to fill out the forms, compute the numbers, and do it. And yes. they have the expertise. This is the yes. point where the people that you're hiring, it's not just like you're hiring somebody just to offload. Yes the job they're actually experts they know what they're doing and you have to you have to learn to defer too because it, it, it like Aton he'll put stuff on my calendar to be like hey I, I got you a meeting with this VC we're meeting with this we're doing a workshop for this and he's like is that okay I'm like look I 100% trust you that anything you put on my calendar is worth it just like when you're with the recording the albums and stuff like that I'm like look you're the amazing bass player I'm not going to tell you how to do that so you really have to understand and respect what they do and then really let them do it. Like let go and let them do it. I want to know your perspective on this because to, to delegate and kind of defer, you have to give up some control. There is this inherent desire for a lot of folks to say, yeah. oh, I'm in control of the end-to-end -end process design. I can come up with the best design. Right. I can muck it up. I can put together a prototype. But in this case, you actually are saying that, you know, yeah, I trust you to do the right thing. But at the same time, there is this yes. nagging feeling in the back of your mind where you're like, okay, what if they screw it up? What if they don't do it the right way? How did you overcome mm -hmm. that part? It depends on the area that you're talking about, right? So if it's talking about marketing and strategy and positioning and outreach and stuff like that, like I've completely let that go, right? Because I'm not that great at that. Like... I can send cold emails, but it's not something I really enjoy and it doesn't really give me energy. Same now with the system and process stuff. I love doing that, but that's just because I love doing it. So I love working with Sam on building that out. I love working with Anthony on DoHQ and the marketing systems and stuff like that. Like it gives me energy. So that's the one thing is what gives you energy and what takes away energy. In the beginning, now don't, I don't want people to misconstrue and think like right out of the gate, you're just going to start delegating because it doesn't give you energy. Like, no, in the beginning, like you're everything. You're all the, all the positions. But as you get better and more confident, then you can start doing that. Where it has been a little bit harder has been with design, like the actual doing of the design. We've hired two amazing designers at Gumroad. And what's really funny is it, it's it's very humbling, actually, because you're like, oh, wait, they did it way better than I would have thought, right? Like, I tried to solve that problem. They just brought a really fresh perspective. And then you're just like, how, who do you think you are, right? Like, who do you think you are that nobody could do it like you could do it? That's not true. It's because you like to do it your way. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the right way. It's just your way. <laughs> so um, I'm getting better at that. In fact, it's something I really want to focus on this year. So the next step for me in these businesses is start to really outsource the design and train those designers. Like, I don't necessarily need to bring in the $300 an hour senior director of design designer right now. It could just be the senior designer that I can work with and train and, and give feedback. And eventually they're going to learn that. So they're an apprentice in that apprentice stage, but you really got to invest a lot of that time to train them. And then people say, well, what if I train them? And then they leave. Well, it doesn't matter. You, what you learned by the training 
you can then do again and you can find some really great talent and develop that talent and on and on and on and on. Sahil is a perfect example at Gumroad. Like we had one call about the open source Gumroad. He's like, you know, I'll throw you some ideas, but ultimately like it's your thing. Go for it. Right. So like he's trusting me with that and you know, he's essentially delegating that on a lot of these things to, to people he knows can, can do a good job. Your point around training well, what if we train them and they leave? Yeah. Or you don't train them and they don't do as good of a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this, what's, I always say, like, what's the alternative? Don't train them and then keep it all secret and have a poor quality or you're doing it. Um, you're doing it all the time. Right. It's just not not ideal. Right. You're doing a disservice to your own team, to your own product. Yes. For all the things that we talked about today, we talked on the last show, you've been doing a lot of things around design. You've been working across the spectrum on big and large design projects. And the one theme that kind of pops to me is that a lot of those opportunities seem to be very, I want to say like serendipitous. It just kind of, mm -hmm. it just appears at the right place at the right time. Yeah. What's your recipe for creating or seeking those out? Because it seems very opaque to me right now as to well, yeah. where do you even start to find those kind of connections and the people and the opportunities to showcase my skills, even if I think that I might have those skills? Yeah, I think, and that was a good question because I saw it in the notes that you'd sent over. And I think, you know, when they say like, go from first principles, right? Like first principle is like, be a decent human being, right? Like just be a good person, help people out. Um, don't screw people over. Don't put money over relationships. Like there's several times in my career that I could have screwed people over for more money. Right. And it, that could have, you know, down the road, a, I don't, I like, you know, I always say that John Wooden, that little book by John Wooden, it's called Wooden. And he said the soft, he's, you know, the NCA coach for, for, uh, I guess Indiana, I'm really messing up if you know college basketball, but he's like the winningest coach in college basketball history. And he said that the softest pillow at night is a clear conscience. So, okay, yeah, so I got a million dollars because I screwed over my business partners. Well, now I'm going to have a really heavy pillow at night every night for the rest of my life. Is that worth it? No. So I always start there of like, be a decent human being, show up, give before you ask for things and just be helpful. Like, and not the cliche helpful, like introduce people, make connections, network. Like I love making connections. So that's the first thing. Like you can do all this, but if you don't have that kind of mindset going into this, it's not going to work. So this, the, 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 the thing is it's, and I, I talked to a high school student the other day, his name is Tate. He's really, really just a smart kid and he's a hustler. And I said, look, it's always, it's like, uh, it's stepping stones, right? So I introduced, he's once again, a 3d printing. So I introduced him to like the CEO of one of the biggest 3d, you know, metalworks place places here. He didn't get the internship, but I said, it doesn't matter. Tate. I was like, you met him and now you have a relationship with him and you can send him things and you could, you know, say, Hey, I found out about this, or you could do whatever that is you've developed that relationship and then you nurture that relationship. Right. So then when some time comes to get a job or whatever, you already, who's he going to hire? Right. 
And it's cliche, but it, it is 100% who you know. And I'm telling my all three of my kids that. like, And not I hate the word networking, but just relationship building and just being helpful. It feels serendipitous, but at the end, it's like something that you work at. And you're not manipulating people. You're genuinely just like, how can I give back? Um, so I've always taken that stance. So if you think about my whole career path as a series of those things, I got a job at this company called Link Computer, right? It was like literally right out of office space because my mom knew a guy that worked there and my mom worked at the YMCA and they had been friends for whatever. He saw like a little bit of my portfolio. He's like, yes, Jack can come. So I get a job there. And then I met this guy named Jason and I met this guy named Ed who worked there. Well, they went on to to start this, this company called School Wires and they asked me as a college freshman to like do the brand for it, right? So they raised a whole bunch of money. Well, that company ended up selling the Blackboard, you know, five years ago. In fact, I I didn't have any of my stock because they were stock options, which expired the year before the company sold for like a couple hundred million. Oh no! <laughs> so, so I remember like you know being all hungover in my college dorm, like doing the logo and the website and stuff like that. But that was that relationship. And then from there, you know, there were people that I met there that went on to start amazing companies and stuff like that. And then the only cold, no relationship, and this was just, you know, this is just how it worked out. It was a cold email I sent to Pentagram and Lisa saw the, my portfolio and Paula Cher comes up over her shoulder and says, hire him. And then the rest is history. Right. So from that time on, uh, it was always about relationships. And then, you know, I was friends with Jake Lodwick at RIT who then started Vimeo and that's how that path went down. Right. Every single one of the things that I'm working on now, like came from those relationships. I only met Jonathan, my business partner for 10 years because he worked at IAC and then they invested in Vimeo and then G and then Jonathan was GM at Vimeo. Right. And then Jonathan became head of product at Teachable and I became a consultant at Teachable. Right. And then Jonathan went on to start this cryptocurrency company called Staked. And then I worked with him on the brand and now, you know, they're doing millions of dollars a month and, and are super successful. So that's what I would say is, is anywhere that you can reach out and genuinely be helpful. And people know, people have a pretty good BS detector. So like the other day I DM my friend Bobby who started Candid and he was also like uh, the, the aligners company. He was also head of design, head of design at WeWork. And I was like, Hey, who's the best writer that, you know, I need someone for system.com. And he's like, you got to talk to Raymond. So now we're working with Raymond and Raymond's an amazing writer, right? So I'm going to be sending all kinds of leads to, to Ray. So that's just how it goes. And I could go on and on and on and on. It's just those relationships. But the recipe is incremental progress. What I'm hearing is that none of these things pop up overnight. You can't do anything today and just blast a hundred messages on LinkedIn and no. tomorrow wake up and be like, I'll find all these jobs. It takes years to build those relationships to make sure that people trust you to make sure that yes. you understand what those people are about i had a recent conversation with uh, someone on this show where we talked about how do you grow your network and yeah. we exactly tackled the topic that you brought up where sometimes we over index on the networking part versus yeah. you actually want to build relationships with those people so that they know you and it's not just a kind of a quid pro quo exchange of I'll give you opportunities if you connect with me. 
Yes, there's a there's a, a pastor called Andy Stanley who's just one of the t- you know top pastors in in the in the world, and he was like talks about running a large church, and he's like, you can either go deep or wide, right? He goes. And he goes, my mentality is do for one what you'd wish you could do for many, right? You can't help everybody. You can't be that person for everybody. So it's better to go deep rather than just surface you know, level relationships over a couple hundred people versus going deep with, with certain people and really you know, strengthening that relationship. That's a whole lot better. Like, and it's just doing it with nothing expected in return. Like when I started talking to, I got to work with Sid, um, Yadav, who was a Teachable at the time, and he was, you know, he was uh, a product uh, uh, product manager at Teachable at the time. Then he became head of head of product at Teachable. He left, and he was like, "Look, I'm a new dad. I'm startup." And we talked, you know, we'd talk on the phone for hours or whatever, and I would just give him advice. And then he went on to start Circle, the community platform, and he worked with Sahil at Gumroad for a little bit. Well, they were like high school friends. So when I said, "Hey, Sid, could you intro me to Sahil?" You think that intro was just like, hey, Jack, here's this idiot designer that I don't really want you to work with, right? Like, it's like, here's Jack. He's great, right? So it was an easy decision for Sahil. So if you do that with nothing expected in return, I don't know, it just makes you feel good. It's just, it's just good to be, to be helpful. And it, 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 it'll come back. If it doesn't come back, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. Let's talk about people. Let's talk about because we're talking about the networking, building relationships. What's your philosophy for successful collaboration with other folks? Because you, again, are working across the spectrum with folks of many different backgrounds, yes. way different expertise levels, and at different companies on different efforts. How do you approach that? What's your, I don't want to call it a almost like a bullet point list of things you need to consider when collaborating with folks, but yeah. Ultimately, what does that look like? And I don't know if I covered it on the last one, but my my num- my the thing I say to every person that I hire or bring onto a team is like, look, my and they talk about you know servant leadership and that sort of thing, and that's always like, you know, like oh, what does servant lead? Like it just sounds like who knows how that means, right? But it really is for me. I'm like hire a developer. My number one job is, is to, is to help you do your best work. And I want to be of service to you. I want to be, no matter what time it is, you let me know you need something to do your job better. I'm here for that. So I approach it entirely based on, I am there to help them do what they do best. That's really it. It's not any more scientific than that. And so if they're happy because they get to do their best work and if they're stressed out because of timelines, that's not their fault. That's my fault. I've if if they're as talented as I is that's why I brought them on, and I know they can do their best work. Why rush them with with poor planning on my behalf? So I never you know have like deadlines that are unreasonable because I know like look okay I could say hey look it needs to be done next week. Well they'll get stressed out and they'll leave and then what right? This is this is entirely voluntary. I'm not sign, they're not signing any kind of lifetime contract with me. They can leave at any time. And I am aware of that. So just reduce do what you can do to reduce friction and really make sure that they understand that. Now, the other thing too is that expectations are clearly defined and de- and not deadlines, but like timelines are clearly defined. 
Because you can be like, hey, whatever I can do to help, blah, blah, blah. And then if you don't have clear timelines or expectations, that's where you do the, hey, how's it going? Hey, how's it going? How's it going? How's it going? Hey, how's it going is really just like, are you done yet? Right? It's dad, are we there yet? Dad, are we there yet? Right? For my kids. They don't trust the timeline. And I tell them and they still ask me. So as long as there's very clear timelines that everybody's on the same page and everybody agrees to, not just me from on high setting them and like what we're going to have complete done by that time, people are way more accountable to themselves than they would be to, to, to management. So that's kind of how I approach it all. And it's, you know, it's worked. It's worked pretty well. That's why I don't like projects that come in. It's like, just be done whenever. <laughs> yeah, that's terrible too. That's not nice. Right? Because then you're like, well, is it going to be tomorrow, in a week, in a month? Yeah. And that misalignment and expectations then leads to somebody then, say, going into like a performance review and saying, well, then yes. didn't do this at the right time. Well, yeah, because there was no time defined. Yeah. It's like when companies have that unlimited vacation policy, which is oh, the yes. worst thing ever. Nobody takes, because everybody knows it's peer pressure, right? Everyone's like, oh, well, Jack took off three weeks. Well, then, and then everyone's mad at Jack, right? Because he took off six weeks. And then nobody takes off because nobody wants to look like that guy or that, that girl. <laughs> right. And it's the opposite of that. Like you said, somebody takes a day off and somebody gets pissed off because, like, well, you know, it's crunch time and we're yeah. working on this project. Why are you going out? I remember at Frog, it was weird. Like if you would get up earlier than everybody else, it was, you'd like walk to the elevator. I would always like go to the bathroom and then just sneak out to the elevator. Uh, it was just so weird. Like why? And I knew, I mean, people knew like it's not a big deal, but it kind of was. People were watching. It's an interesting psychological concept where- <laughs> Humans are weird. Right. Where we're tying our performance on the job yeah. to the hours. Despite yeah. the fact that the hours themselves don't matter, like you can get your job done in the first three hours of the day and yes. just check out. That's why working from home has been great because nobody sees that. It's just like, what does it matter? I really don't care. Like get your, get your work, you know, not even get your work done. It's like, look, we all agreed. We're all on a team here. So everybody yeah. just, you know, don't be like the school project where the one person who doesn't pull their weight, they get kicked out of the, they get kicked out of the project. Right. That's how it goes. But then we also have things like the little status bubble on Slack or Teams <laughs> or anything where somebody sees you in that little Z that like this person has been away for more than 20 minutes. And you're like, that slacker is not on this computer right now. <laughs> well, you have to fight that actively, too. I know. I know. Sahil does that. It's like and I've done that with with people that I've worked with where I'm like, look, log off like please don't come back online. You do not have to. Jason Freed has written about that too from Basecamp about like heroes at work who, you know, putting in 80 hours a week. It does affect the culture. Like right. it can be the person who doesn't work at all, but the person who works way too much and everybody feels that pressure and anxiety and then people are miserable. So you really do have to be intentional about that as part of the culture. That's why never send emails on the weekend because you're setting that example like, well, this person works on the weekend. You're sending the wrong message. It's not people are now looking at you as, wow, this person works really hard to make our company successful. It's more yeah. of this guy, like really, really yeah. we're arresting with our families on the weekend and you're sending work emails. Yeah. And it, and it depends too. Like for me, um, the people that I work with are always like, feel bad. Like, Hey Jack, I sent you something. I, you know, I shouldn't have bothered you. I'm like, 
look, I've been working this way for like the last 15 years. You don't have to worry about that with me. I love it. And I'm always on now when I'm with my family, with my family, the phone's, you know, gone. I try to try to do that as much as possible, but like, I love what I do. So it's, I don't look at it like, oh, the boss is emailing me. Right. It's just like, hey, you know, and I don't also don't expect people to, if it's just communication, that's fine. But like, yeah, if it's in a corporate environment and you're expecting people to do like, if it's a straight up employee agreement, that's where it gets a little bit like, come on. But if it's startups and it's your partners, you know, found other founders or whatever, like that's just, you know, how it goes. It's situational. Yes. There's no blanket recipe to that. Yes. But speaking of startups... Something that we did not tackle in the last podcast, but you yeah. briefly mentioned and I want to talk about is so-called Vimeo Mafia. And we, we talked <laughs> I about- came up with this. <laughs> I don't think anybody else calls it that. Right. But there's the PayPal Mafia that everyone knows. It's yes. literally everywhere. And now there's this Vimeo site. Tell us yeah. more. What is that about? Yeah. And it's kind of timely because we've all had to reflect because of Vimeo going public now. Um, in fact, I posted a picture on LinkedIn from like 2007. Yeah, it was like- I saw that, yep. And, and a lot of those people didn't even work at Vimeo. They were at College Humor because we were all in the same office. So there's maybe 10, 10 of us. And if I put little things over each one of their heads, so you have Jake. So Jake Lodwick started Vimeo um, and I met Jake at RIT. He, they started Connected Ventures, which houses Busted Tees, Vimeo, and College Humor, right? Those were like the the, the main companies. So- IAC bought Connected Ventures. So as part of Connected Ventures, Josh, Ricky, and Zach, and Jake were the four partners in Connected Ventures. So Jake obviously started Vimeo or whatever. He was an early investor in Tumblr. He was an early investor in MakerBot. And he was an, his cousin started Bleacher Report, which he was also an early investor, right? So just right there is... Uh, almost $2 billion worth of acquisitions. So like $1.5 billion of acquisitions from Jake, right? So that's Jake. And the funny thing is back in those days, like in the startup scene, like we were all like the Tumblr crew always hung out and the MakerBot crew and Brie Pettis and stuff like they were all there. So it was just, it was just a really great startup community back then. That was when Foursquare and all kinds of stuff. And so then Josh Abramson, who was one of the partners with Jake, he left Connected Ventures and started a company called T Public. He sold that for $41 million, gosh, a couple of years ago, not that long ago. Um, so he's an amazing entrepreneur. Then we have Zach Hoekin. We called him Iowa because he was from Iowa, right? He was developer at, at Vimeo. He was right, like, right in the desk in front of me. And he would always work on these little robots and stuff. And he ended up s- starting MakerBot and selling that for $400 million Brie Pettis. So Zach, that's another story. Then there was Patrick Moberg, who was to my right. He was also an, an RIT grad. He's the one, and if you type in Patrick Moberg's Subway Romance, he was on the Today Show because he was on the subway and there was this girl that he, he was like, wow, she caught my eye. And so like he wrote a blog article or something where he's like, I need to meet, I need to meet this girl. And so they actually like put it on the Today Show and they found the girl. And so it was the most awkward Today Show segment ever. And we were all making fun of him the whole time. Like as soon as he came in the office, we were all clapping and busting on him. He went to John Berthwick's, uh, I forget why am I forgetting what the name of it is, but it was like a startup studio. Anyway, you can Google it. But he sold Dots. So he created that Dots iOS game. He called it, He created a studio, I think, called Two Dots or Dots or whatever. They sold that, him and his partner, for $192 million. So that was Patrick, right? And then Ricky Van Veen, who was the partner with Josh 
and Josh and Jake and Zach in Connected Ventures. He's now head of global creative strategy at Facebook, right? So Facebook watch, like all that kind of stuff. So that's Ricky. He's like, you know, he'll hang out. You'll see a picture of him like in the Inquirer where he's hanging out with Jeff Bezos and, and <laughs> like on a yacht with Barry Diller. Like he would talk about like a crazy life. Like we'd be like, come back from Thanksgiving vacation and be like, oh, what'd you do? Uh, well, I just went to my grandma's and had Thanksgiving. Like, Ricky, what did you do? Oh, I got a bus with Aziz and Zari and John Mayer. And we just drove around on a bus. <laughs> like talk about a, just a different life. Um, and he was married to um, Brian Williams, to Allison Williams, um, who was in just all kinds of different movies. Then there was Josh Moore. We called him J-Mo. He was the head of Busted Tees. So Busted Tees was just like a cash cow to Connected Ventures. Made some, And that's why they always were mad at us because they were covering our bills at Vimeo because we were losing all this money and they would just cover our salaries with Busted Tees money. He left Vimeo and then we were like, what is Josh doing now? Or he left Busted Tees and he's like, oh, he's working at this like black cab company. It's, I don't know. I don't know why anybody would want to work for a black cab app. Because right? nobody in New York wanted to take black cabs. They were too expensive. So he was he became head of Uber in New York. I think maybe employee number three or four. Basically grew Uber New York from nothing to like $3 billion in, in, in revenue. So he got a chunk of stock. And when they went public, he's good to go. Right? He can wear whatever he wants at a wedding from now on. So he's now a VC. Um, then there's Zach Klein, who's now the CEO at Dwell Magazine. Uh, he was one of the partners. Sarah Schneider, who's now the head writer at SNL. She, uh, you know, a lot of the new SNL skits she's written. Same with Streeter Seidel. He was also a writer at SNL. And then Dan Gurowicz, who's a writer at Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. And then there's one other one, which is coming soon, which I can't reveal who it is. But, you know, he could be doing another 300 $80 million deal, $480 million deal. I'm not sure at this point, but that's still in negotiations, but he'll be the second he'll be with that acquisition. He'd be the top acquisition of all those people, but it's just, and there's probably more, right? I can even list like, there's probably a lot more, but it was just, what was amazing about that. It was just, everybody was at kind of the, you know, mid career beginning of their career and everybody just loved to build things. And we had so much fun. You'd walk in and there'd be an entire, like the ball pit you get, like a Chuck E. Cheese. And Ricky and Josh's, Josh's office would be full with those balls, like a Chuck E. Cheese. Or they'd be having like a chicken nugget eating contest or jello wrestling or jousting or like, <laughs> like, and when they were doing the MTV show, they were so loud. But yeah, so it was just a, an amazing time to be in New York. Uh, with startups and and you'll just see and now I actually connected with Sam Reich who's the head writer at College Humor like the producer director his dad is Robert Reich right like the Robert Reich like the famous pundit and economist or right whatever. and uh, we were talking about like how crazy it was in those days and how just it was kind of a madhouse like how anybody got anything done but everybody was, you know, had their own talents and everybody kind of went on and did their own thing and pretty amazing to watch. That is crazy. Just yeah. the star studded crew of folks that now built all these things. Yeah. It's it's fascinating that it didn't get more coverage than us just talking on this podcast. It, it really yeah. is. It, it sounds to me that 
these are the folks, these are the builders. These are the people yes. that, like you said, you have fun building stuff. And yes. it's a reflection, all this funding and the companies and the yeah. positions that, you know, as a writer for SNL, like that is insane to me. Yeah, because- the head writer, like not just a writer, like the, and Sarah was, and if you go back to old college uh, humor videos, like type in Sarah Snyder, like she's hilarious. Like they, college humor got, so little credit for how, you know, how groundbreaking a lot of their original content was in the early days. And, you know, that's why I knew some of them were just so talented that, uh, like Jake and Amir, I don't know if you watch Jake and Amir. Yeah. Videos. Yeah. And when, uh, Streeter and Amir would do those prank videos at like the, the New York Yankees game, uh, they did a fake, <laughs> like a, a fake proposal. And, Amir basically said on the screen, like, will you marry me for Streeter's girlfriend? And then Streeter's like, no, 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 no I don't, I don't want to get married. <laughs> like, it was a big, big disaster. But yeah, it was fun. It was a really fun time. It's still one of those areas where now that you brought it up and I think about what does it mean to build something together versus going solo, mm-hmm. your stories are just adding a lot of substance and weight to the idea of you should never be building things solo. You should be bouncing ideas from other people. You should be working with other people. Try to collaborate and make sure that it's not just a project that is your own imagination becoming reality. Yeah. And I want to know more from you now that we're talking about collaboration. Is there any value in doing things solo versus working with other people. Because from what I hear from you, solo is not really the the recipe for success. I've tried. Uh, in fact, I used to listen to Dave Ramsey a lot and he would always say the only ship that doesn't sail is a partnership because <laughs> he's he's that type of personality, right? He's like big, right. big personality, like control, likes control and things like that. But he still didn't do it on his own. He hires really great people partners with really great people. So it doesn't mean it's like everything has to be like founder, co-founder kind of relationship. There's so many different ways that you can structure things where you could say like, look, I'll own the LLC, but I'll give you 30% of everything that we bring in. Right. And I, and a lot of times I'll own the LLC just for convenience. Cause I don't want to create another bank account because I have enough of those, right? Like different corporate cards all over the place. So, you know, that's how I've set it up where I know that if I bring them in, there are times where I need contractors and there's times I need partners, right? Not everybody wants to join a band and that's okay. Um, joining a band is like, Hey, look, I go from, Hey, I need cash to like, I want to build an asset. So if you try to bring it where I've seen the most friction is, okay, I want to partner with people, right? If you want to do it alone, that is hundred percent. There are a lot of people who have done that on their own, but if you want to do it as a partner or with partners, if you try to bring in a contractor as a partner and they're thinking cash flow, cash flow, cash flow, it never works. I've seen, in fact, I watched a project that I was involved in that I actually stepped away from because I knew I saw it a mile away. I was brought in again as like the outside consultant. So I was totally unemotional about it. I'm like, that guy that you just brought in as a partner, he he, he wants cash and he will make shortcuts and he will not invest unless you give him cash. And I knew some signals of like, you know, his spouse was very focused on like, hey, why aren't you doing freelance anymore? And it's like, okay, that's a signal too, right? Husband or wife, it doesn't matter. 
those roles could be reversed. It creates a lot of conflict because then that person is like, I need to get paid. I need to get paid. I need to get paid. So they rush everything. So if you're looking for partners, you need someone who understands the value of building assets, long-term assets that don't return right away. And that they should be comfortable with building for a year, two years, maybe even three years without actually getting any money out of the company. That takes a certain kind of person. It, it helps if they've had an experience like that in the past because they're going to get nervous. Their husband or wife is going to be nervous, especially if they have kids because it's like, look, we need to pay the bills. That's great that you have your cute little asset business over here, but we need cash. And I've been in spots like that too where I needed the cash. So- if you're going to do it alone, you can still build a team and you can pay them their rate, pay them exactly what they want as far as their rate. Don't try to undercut them or you're never going to get the full, like the full power of what they could do. And then set up incentive structures where you can give percentages of income or you can just whatever would that they would be excited about that you're just not just in any other transactional client. So, and then when you have partners, don't jump into that marriage right away, right? Uh, and a lot of the projects I worked on, I was a freelancer at first. I was a contractor and then I got really excited about it. Like when the early days of Flavors, the first startup that we started, I had like $40,000 in invoices that were yet to be paid. And I said, you know what, Jonathan, like I want to join. So I'm just going to use that 40K as my buy-in. So now I'm a partner, right? So that's what happened, right? And that, And then- so I switched from cash to like, whoa, this could actually be something. And if we wouldn't have said to no to Facebook, like that company would have returned, you know, 40, 50, 60 million dollars. So that was way better than anything I would have been able to charge hourly for. So that's what I would look is, is it's, it's a relationship. It's built on trust. Date for a while. Don't jump in the marriage. I sound like my mom, right? Like make sure they're the right one. <laughs> That's what I would say about that. So you have to find somebody that actually believes in the product, the mission, what you're building is important. They're invested more than just in financial sense of, you know, I'm yeah, I expect a return of 10x of what I put into this because yes. It's exciting when you think about a startup that if I'm going to start working on this, eventually I will become a millionaire if this sells to Facebook or if this sells to Twitter or whichever other mm -hmm. company. But that creates that perverse incentive where now you're focusing on where's my exit instead of how do we build this out in a way that is sustainable and can actually become a business. Yes. And it's even more, I would even describe it as like delayed gratification. If they have that ability to delay payment, to delay return, that's the key to it. And be cautious of someone being like, hey, I'm quitting my job and I'm gonna do this full time. Well, now it's like, oh, I need money, I need money, I need money. And now you're taking shortcuts with customers, you're building fast, you're, you're overcharging customers, you're not reinvesting in the business and it gets messy like really fast. So I would say someone, and my, my, my wife had to, my wife Marissa had to grow with me on this because it would be like, when's the money coming in? And I'd be like, just a couple more years, <laughs> we'll be good. And she knows now. So what I've done is because I, I do so many things because if I just had I'm not at a point in my life where I can just have one thing. That was like single Jack yeah. or Mary Jack with no kids. 
Now I've got to be able to say like, this pays my bills. This is an asset I'm doing. This may pay five years from now, right? But if I was just in that, I would be very nervous. And nervous people don't uh, perform very well, stressed out. Right. And speaking of stress, because you're doing a lot of things, how do you manage, well, stress and avoid burnout? Because I personally am also the kind of person that I like to get my hands into a lot of things and make sure that this project is running and this project is running and I have time for this and my full-time job. How do you balance all that out and still find the energy to dedicate to your family and just continue day to day and not just quit on a whim and say, you know what? I can't do this. Done. Yes. I have, I run everything through Basecamp. That's like my thing. So I have four lists um, and I've borrowed a lot from different programs, things like that. One that I really like wake up warrior. That was one that's like just about for entrepreneurs and dads and stuff like that, how to structure your day. So for me, I have a hit list, which is what things I need to get done today. From that hit list, I get items from what's called a hot list, which is what um, like my backlog of things I need to get done. So I'll drag things from the hot list into the hit list. So today I've got you know an interview with, with you. I've got some Gumroad things. I've got some stuff to do for Design for Dex and some stuff for Do HQ, right? And that, you know, it's not like I'm working. I'll work from, say, uh, I've been doing my workouts in the morning. So let's say I start at like 9.30 and I'll go till 5.30. And then we'll hang out with the kids, have dinner, whatever. And then I'll go from 8.30 to like 11.30. That's kind of how I divide up my day. Then, so I have my hit list, my hot list. Then I have, it's kind of a weird name, but they're called like a war map or like, what are the things that I want to, what battles do I want to win this week? What are the four things that I want to get done. Number one, I'm going to have the design for deck website done. I'm going to start research on Gumroad, some other things like four things that have to get done this week. That informs what I do on a given day. And then the big thing is, is a quarterly and yearly challenge goals across four different areas. So body being balance and business. So what are my quarterly goals? So right now I have Quarterly and yearly goals for for body, meaning like workout and stuff like that. So I'm doing the, so last year it was run a marathon on my own, right? And I don't know if I talked about this on the last one. I did, did I? I forget. No. I didn't. No, 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 you did not. That was, so my yearly goal, my yearly challenge, and you break it up by quarters and say, okay, by this, by first quarter, I would have been doing regular 20 mile weeks, right? Or I'm doing a big 12, you know, you could break it up into different training, training schedules. But ultimately, at the end of the year, I wanted to run 26.2 miles, right? By myself, No, ma- I'm not going to join a marathon because I, I don't need anybody else's schedule. I want to do mine. So I woke, but at the end of that year, I woke up at 5.30 in the morning with a headlamp and, uh, and a backpack with all my stuff. And I had done all the research and I set out in the dark and ran 26.2 miles. And I came home and my, my kids had drawn little signs like, dad did a marathon. It was like, there it was. And I broke that up over a quarter. And then, you know, I have goals in balance, like family goals. Um, you know, we want to go on vacations, we want to do this. And each one it's like, okay, did I hit my weekly target? Or did I hit my daily target? Did I hit my weekly target? Did I hit my quarterly target? And then did I hit my yearly target? So I have all those broken out because I find I'm much more motivated by a challenge than I am by even a goal or whatever that is. Like, so for now, my challenge in body is there's a 26 week Navy SEALs preparation for BUDS training. It's 26 weeks and it is very intense. I've had to adjust it a bit to fit my schedule, but you know, it involves swimming 
you know, I'm uh, almost two miles. Last week I ended up doing like 44 laps in the pool and I had never even done 10 laps before. So I was like way out of my element and I love it. Like I'm not the best swimmer, but I'm getting better. And then, you know, by the end of the 26 weeks, you're swimming uh, 3,500 yards in one day and then you're running nine miles and then you're doing, so you're doing like two workouts a day or whatever. Am I going to join the Navy SEALs? No. And my wife, everybody laughs at me. And the only person that un- truly understands me and why I'm weird like this is my friend, Charlie, who I grew up with. And Charlie just happens to be a UFC fighter. He was a former UFC fighter. Had, uh, I think, seven or eight fights in the UFC in front of millions of people. And he still works out and works his butt off. Like, And, and he knows... So my kids are going to grow up with, oh, yeah, my dad, you know, uh, I saw him out in the back porch in the dead of winter in a garbage can doing Wim Hof breathing exercises in, in 30, you know, 38 degree water. (laughs) They just know like that was a challenge. That was one of my yearly challenges. Like, can I actually sit five minutes in almost freezing water. And I would put salt in it so it didn't freeze so I could get it as cold as possible. But Charlie's you understand it, you know, and that's that's kind of how it, and I have business goals, what my monthly targets are, my yearly targets, that sort of thing. So it sounds like a lot of work, but it really for me helps me stay focused and everything is driving towards some sort of challenge that makes me very uncomfortable when I think about it. It's a system. And I, I like the structured approach and having some kind of a plan and not just Oh, I'll do whatever comes to mind that day. And, you know, yeah, time will fill up because your calendar will fill up no matter what. There's always going to be stuff to do, but there needs to be some kind of a system or structure to guide that. I I really, really like that. Yeah. The last question that I have is given all your experience, expertise across design, leadership, and working with many people in startups and enterprises. One unconventional piece of advice for our audience that's something that's not generally talked about or there's not a lot of maybe blog posts written about or anything like that. Something that you learn from experience. One thing. Oh, gosh, so many things. I think for me, I would say that that um, I want to say the, the thing that keeps coming to my mind is like you don't have to be an entrepreneur. Like there's always this pressure to like be the entrepreneur, be the entrepreneur you know, build a company with a billion people, you know, a billion employees and a billion dollars in revenue and stuff like that. And that like more money will make you happy. And if you make more money, you're going to get happier, which is not the case. What I, what I tell people early on in their career, and as I've learned more about this is instead of saying like, how much do you want to make? And then that, that will give you a certain lifestyle, start backwards and say, what kind of lifestyle do I want? And then build things around you to make that happen. That for me, like the fact that I feel zero pressure to turn any of the things I'm working on into like massive companies where I'm like, you know, r- running large design teams. I have no desire for that. Right. It was the same way with music, too. Where it was like, no, you have to be selling out arenas. We're like, well, what if I just want to play bars? Right. Like, why is that so bad? So really look at your lifestyle when you look at all the startup pressure out there to just like build these massive companies. Like if you want to do that, that's awesome. But if you feel bad that you're not feeling that way, that is okay. And me as like the sage old 40 years old, which I just turned, 
I think back on like, okay, what if I would have sold it to this? Or what if we would have done this? And I would have been in San Francisco at Facebook. Like, what if I would have been a D bag? What if I would have like not? So like all of these things, I'm like, no, I'm, I love <laughs> the lifestyle that I have now. Like I get to do this interview with you. I'll hang up. I'll go cook chicken on the grill. I'll go, you know, go out on the porch and, and, and sit in the sun for a little bit, come back in, do some stuff for Gumroad, do some stuff for do each. Like I have built now that took a lot of work. I had to work for companies and been the employee and all that stuff, but I've finally gotten to a, like a lifestyle first where I've had opportunities where it's like, Hey Jack, we'd like to make you uh, in fact, I got a, an email from a recruiter at Amazon in my LinkedIn messages. And he, and she said, look, there's a Bezos backed project that is in the music niche and you have the opportunity to lead a whole design team and whatever and stuff like that. So I talked to Daniel who works with me at Gumroad he worked at Amazon for like a lot of years. He goes, you don't want to go there. He's like, you have no idea what, what kind of bureaucracy you're entering. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. I could move to Seattle and upend my whole life. Is that the lifestyle that I want? Like, do I want to work, you know, 20 hours, 20 hours a day? You know, no. Would it, would I make more money? Probably no, it's just not. And when you get clear on that, when you're crystal clear about what the lifestyle that you want then you work backwards from every day and then you make decisions based on the life that you want to live. Um, it sounds obvious, but it's not often obvious. Yeah, I'd say it's not very obvious because a lot of people do not work backwards. They think through, I have to do all these things and get the money and then for what? Yeah. But I, I like the approach of thinking backwards and instead going from kind of like what you refer to as the first principles as to actually what is this all in service of? And then going backwards and saying, okay, and to do this, I can map out the steps. It's been super, super helpful talking to you about this stuff. It's been an educational experience. i tell you one last thing about that. I knew it was true when we'd be in these acquisition discussions at Twitter, Etsy, Squarespace, any of these GoDaddy, Yahoo. And I would technically be lying the entire time. I didn't want to work at any of those companies. But I was like, this is what I have to do. I joined this rocket ship and now I have to, what, if we sell, then I guess I just have to put my time in and I'll be miserable. But it'll only be four years and I'll get my stock and then I'll leave. So that was a signal to me of like, well, wait a second. Why would I be miserable? Some people would be like ecstatic. And I'm like, no, that feels like a jail sentence to me. So to, to be attentive to those reactions and you'll know and you're like, wow, this is, I don't want to actually, I don't care if I make more money if I'm miserable. I'd rather have a better life. So yeah. Right. At some point, happiness comes to the forefront and it's very hard to explain it to folks early in their career because to them, it's like, oh, this makes no sense. I just want to like work 24 hour a day and just make all, <laughs> yeah. But then at some point you're going to reach burnout. You're going to get exhausted. Yes. You're going to hate your job. You're going to hate the product that you're working on. Yes. Don't go down that route. No. Jack, thank you so much for being here with me today and talking about your experiences. And once again, we did not go through all the questions that I had, but that's okay. <laughs> I, uh, once I get going, I can talk. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jack, for being here. Yes. Thanks, Dan.